All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, Second Samuel chapter 11, David and Bathsheba. And of course, this is well known. This is uh, the first of David's manifest falls from grace and from God's will. Of course, there's the issue of his multiple wives, but that isn't highlighted here in the text. Um, the way that this episode is. Now, we got a little ways into this, of course. Um, David, as is indicated in the early verses of chapter 11, should be out uh, at war. It is the springtime of the year when the kings go out to battle. That's the expected behavior of David. He is at home. And so, of course, you know, does this bespeak a lack of courage, a failure of vocation, that kind of thing? We may speculate, we may wonder. And then into verses 2 and following, of course, David sees a woman. She's very beautiful, Bathsheba. Some of what I didn't point out last week is uh, just the ritual aspects of what's going on. In particular, uh, her bathing is um, on the basis of the law to be ritually clean from her uh, feminine impurity and so what's being contrasted here is her lawfulness, her keeping of the law over and against David's unlawfulness and his transgression against the law. And that actually is a theme that runs throughout uh, this text. So obviously um, the initiative here is on David. And you can see this in uh, verse 3 and following he sends his servant, he sent, he inquired, um, then is this not Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite? Of course, Uriah as a Hittite is not an Israelite, but he has been brought into Israel. So this is proof too that even in the Old Testament, Gentile peoples were brought into Israel and incorporated into salvation. He is one of the elite warriors in uh, David's army. David sends, again, you can just see who's controlling the verbs here. Verse 4, David sent messengers, took her, she came to him, there's passive, he lay with her. So all the action, all the active verbs are on the part of David, indicating that the, the author in the text clearly puts the onus on him, not on her. Afterwards, she returns to her house, and then she simply sends and says to David, I am pregnant. Okay, and then, you know, we left off in the middle of this next section. So I'll simply pick up at verse 6, and we'll read through uh, David's, David's conniving, David's plotting here that goes from bad to worse. Verse 6, David sent word to Joab, of course, Joab's the commander of his army, send me Uriah the Hittite. 
And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going, which probably would have struck Uriah as odd, given that Uriah is a warrior and a rather elite warrior, and what is he doing being treated like a messenger? Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, which of course we talked about. I mean, that's a practical thing. That's what you do when you go inside, but there's uh, innuendo in in these words, to be sure. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. So David obviously trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so he can make it look like uh, the baby was his, cover up his sin. David said to Uriah, you know, which also forces Bathsheba to become a liar and a deceiver to her husband. So, I mean, that's going to be one of the, one of the overarching themes of this section, it, that one sin never affects only oneself. And the subsequent sins affect not only oneself but others. And it multiplies throughout David's entire household, as we're going to see. Okay, so Uriah, verse 9, slept at the door of the king's house with all, his, with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. That's temporary housing, um, obviously. Uh, and then my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. That's temporary, shall I then go into my house, my permanent dwelling, to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And again, relating back to the ritual law of Moses, this is all Uriah doing the the pure and technically correct thing in accordance with the law, all of this. So what's being contrasted is David's lawlessness and Uriah the Hittite, this outsider in Gentiles, lawfulness and His faithfulness to Yahweh, David's unfaithfulness to Yahweh. All right, so shall I go into my house, eat and drink, and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk, that is, David made Uriah drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So even, uh, even drunk Uriah is more faithful than uh, sober David. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. It's just terrible, just terrible. Because, of course, David sleeps with his wife, robs him of his wife, then robs him of his life. And so you've got, yeah, you've got uh, Sixth Commandment and Fifth Commandment and... And then, of course, as we talk about sin spreading, now he's going to implicate Joab. Joab's going to be guilty of murder, too, in, in this regard, if, especially if he follows the, the letter of, of David's, uh, yeah, well, the letter of, the, of David's letter. Um, 
and does it exactly, which he doesn't do exactly, but he's still implicated. Okay, so, and of course, this very tragic too, and just very brutal and disgusting. I mean, not only how, not only the adultery against Bathsheba and Uriah, but Uriah in particular here, and then the murder of Uriah, but then just the, the insulting, fateful, dramatic way in which it's conducted that he carries his own death sentence in his hands to the front lines. It's just really, really satanic, really diabolical. And David here is, uh, yeah, off the reservation. Okay, so verse 16, And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men, that is, uh, on the enemy side. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So you can see that Joab doesn't directly obey David. And he, he still does in spirit. The point is that David wants Uriah dead, and Joab sees to that. So Joab's complicit. Okay. But Joab actually, as we've seen Joab do many times before in this text, he's quite calculating. And he's got a better idea of how to do this so that it doesn't seem so obvious. After all, if they follow the letter of David's law, if they follow his letter to the T, uh, the men are going to know that, that this thing, I mean, go up with him into the heat of the battle and then draw back so that he's alone and dies. I mean, all of those men then are complicit. They know, morale drops. They, they understand that, hey, wait a minute, if you uh, land on the wrong side of David, he'll have you killed. That's not a man you want to fight for. So Joab uh, avoids all of this nastiness that David's plan would have had and still accomplishes the goal. All right, so then verse 18. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, which is going to include the loss of the other Israelites as they rushed into this dangerous place. That kind of gives you the, the broader context. When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and he said to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not shoot from the wall? That is, as he starts to chastise the messenger and the messenger is going to then bring that message of chastisement to Joab, like how could you be so stupid uh, going right up against the wall and losing Israelite lives? Okay. Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? And then here's another question. Who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerubasheth? That's a reference back to Judges. Um, Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? In other words, you should have known from your own history, you should have known from your Bible not to get close to the wall. I mean, if you're up close to a wall, even a woman could kill a, an elite soldier or something. An unarmed woman, you know, could kill an elite soldier. So all this chastisement, right, that he anticipates David will uh, heap upon the messenger. Okay, then you shall say, so Joab tells the messenger, respond to David in this way, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Well, that's going to shut David's mouth because he's going to realize that was the way in which it happened and that'll be that. Okay, so verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. 
The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Maybe a little hyperbole or exaggeration there. Uh, who knows? Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So really kind of a devious, devious response when you know what's behind it. The messenger wisely chooses his own way to word this, including volunteering the information that Uriah the Hittite's dead. He's not going to risk angering David. So that's the exchange. The deed is done. Verse 26, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Understandably so. Uh, I mean, this is a terrible terrible thing. And again, the way the text puts it, I mean, maybe she should have resisted David and maybe resisted unto punishment or death. You know, that's always a possibility. Um, but it's, again, the way the text presents it, that's just not really in view. This is primarily David's sin. He took advantage. She was powerless in the situation. Uh, he's obviously the king. So that's, uh, that's the presentation of the text. All right, uh, so she's mourning Uriah, obviously. Verse 27, And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. <laughs> yeah, just a little. Yeah, so what's so dastardly about this is all of David's sin is cloaked and covered over in this facade of goodness. So that even bringing home Uriah, he tries to couch as mercy and, hey, you know, look, I know while you're here, I know you're missing your wife, you know, and then come to the king's court and drink. And then even as he's foisting drinks upon him, I mean, that's the, I mean, that's hospitality and, trying to be magnanimous, and then um, just trying to get him drunk, you know, trying to cover his sin. And then when he doesn't, this whole business and the whole back and forth and the false comforting of Joab, it's okay, you know, we lo everybody loses. And then most of all, most egregious and dastardly of all, is this act of marrying Bathsheba. How, how did he spin that? How was that perceived? Ah, this poor soldier's wife, this poor pregnant widow, who, you know, who will... Who I actually, you know, I don't know that it was, if her pregnancy became known, that's what they, but I don't think his pregnancy was known. It's just this poor widow, you know, she, poor soldier's wife. Who will take care of her? Ah, oh, the king will, the king will bring her in. You know, it's just really, yeah, it's really sick. It's really disgusting. So that's, um, I mean, again, David makes it here so that he looks like the good guy throughout this whole thing when he's the bad guy. Uh, he may have pulled the wool over most people's eyes, but not the Lord's. Thus the, the fateful last line, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. All right, verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1, excuse me. And the Lord sent Nathan 
to David. Now, we've seen Nathan before come up as a prophet. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. All right, well, what is Nathan setting up here by way of parable? Although, does David know it's a parable? No, he doesn't, and we'll get to that in a minute. He thinks that this is a legitimate case that's been brought for him to judge. All right, well, the man with many flocks is clearly David. He has all the women he could choose from. You know. And, and uh, then there is a poor man who had nothing but one little ewe lamb, and that, of course, is Uriah with Bathsheba. Okay, there's the, there's the setup. And he brought it up, that is, the poor man brought up the lamb, the little ewe lamb, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. You can see that David takes this as a legitimate story in case that he's going to sit in judgment over. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, he swears upon the Lord. I mean, that's how serious David takes this. He takes this as a legitimate thing. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. There's the death sentence. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Both of these are in accordance with the law, you know. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. At least the fourfold aspect is in keeping with the law. Okay, then David, then Nathan says to David, You are the man. Oh. Which I mean the yeah. The 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 amazing strength of Nathan to be able to say that. I mean, especially given Saul and, and even David who had just had Uriah murdered. I mean, next thing Nathan knows, he's being conscripted and sent off to the front lines. <laughs> yeah. No, this, I mean, this took a great deal of bravery on the part of Nathan, but the Lord sent him and he was faithful to his task. So then he says, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hands of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? So this is, this is parallel in some respects to Saul who had despised the word of the Lord and acted against it. But what's the difference between Saul and David? That's the key point to, to highlight here. Saul was impenitent. Saul did not express any remorse that was legitimate or any change of behavior or action. Um, let's see how David responds. So why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword 
and have taken his wife, uh, his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Here's the first formal punishment announced. The sword shall never depart from your house. And sad to say, uh, much if not most of the rest of the book of 2 Samuel consists of the playing out of this. Because of David's sin and because of this punishment, the sword does not, uh, does not depart from his house. Because you have despised me, that me is, uh, you know, that me is the divine me, that is the voice of Yahweh, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So this is, I mean, this is really a damning indictment. And you can see various ways in which Justice is being meted out as David tried to do all this thing hidden, making himself look like the good guy. So the punishment is going to be an inversion of that where um, David is going to be publicly scorned and embarrassed. And, uh, you know, whereas he committed adultery, adultery is going to be committed against him, etc. So he took the wife of another, his wives will be taken by another, etc. So you can see all kinds of like parallelism and, and I mean, a kind of justice being enacted here, uh, one-to-one, so to speak. All right, so these are all of the consequences levied upon David heretofore. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, which is an incredible statement based on all that we've seen heretofore going through the Scriptures too. It's a pretty rare moment when one of God's people just simply says, I did this thing. I have sinned, you know, and just acknowledges their guilt before the Lord. No excuses, uh, no ulterior motives, just a pure confession of sin before the Lord. And as we've talked about uh, David being a man after the Lord's heart, this is also one of the key aspects and ways in which he is a man after the Lord's heart, because the Lord is looking constantly for those who will repent who will acknowledge their sin. That's the, that's the rare thing on earth. The rare thing on earth is a sinner who will acknowledge his sin. That, all, that too is what causes the angels in heaven to rejoice. It's that rare. You know, we human beings rejoice over uh, rare and good things. The angels rejoice over rare and good things. And in this case, a sinner who repents. So in this way, too, David is a man after God's heart. That is, he does, uh, he does, of course, it's not God's will that he sin or cover his sin or do any of these heinous things, but having been found guilty, having been accused by the Lord to repent, that is the God-pleasing thing to do. So Nathan immediately responds to David, the Lord has put away your sin. Now, what you see here, too, frankly, is a, a confession and absolution. David makes confession. Nathan grants absolution. 
Yeah, so you can see this active and, and relevant in the Old Testament and then, of course, put forward formally by our Lord Jesus in the New. He breathes on his apostles and says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. So that authority to forgive sins, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, as our Lord himself gives at the end of Luke's Gospel. So you can see that in a kind of nation form here. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Of course, David was, was guilty of uh, adultery, which carries capital punishment in the law of Moses, as well as murder, which carries capital. So the Lord is lenient here to David. But, um, the sad part is that he, he forgave David, but he, he strikes the little... You know how people say, why well, strike the innocent little babies? Yeah. He kind of take it out, use that little baby as a punishment for mm. David. Yeah. And a little baby, they right. can't even. Yeah. A baby yeah. is something that people don't understand. Right. And they say, why babies suffer? Yes, right, right. Yeah, so, um, yes, as we go on, uh, as we go on in the text, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. So David does not face the punishment um, that the law demands. God is merciful. Uh, and announces this through the prophet Nathan. Um, nevertheless, there are going to be temporal consequences. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, and there you can hear the severity of the sin and the severity of the Lord's anger, you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Okay, so effectively then, two temporal consequences levied against David. The first, that the sword will not depart from David's house. And we're going to see that bear itself out. And the second, that uh, the child of this sinful act is going to be taken away from David. So um, uh, now this, this child... Um, of course, lots of people have issues, you know, why, are the child, why is the child being punished instead of David, this kind of thing. Uh, but we're going to see in David's reaction that, that David is actually thankful that the child is going to be taken to be with the Lord. Okay? So, <laughs> while, while our sin works for evil, God uses that evil for good. And one of the great goods that has come from this sorrow of David and this temporal punishment of God stripping his child away from, stripping those earthly years that they would have had together, uh, and, and taking that away. Um, one, of, uh, one of the benefits to come of that, and we'll see, the child dies before the eighth day, that is, before circumcision. And yet David is completely comforted that this child is being taken by the Lord to him. This grants wonderful comfort to uh, those of us that have children who have died prior to baptism. Um, that God takes them even unto himself. So there is, there is from our evil, from David's evil, a good, that, a profound good that comes from this text. From generation to generation, we have hope. Uh, we have that same hope that David has in the Lord's mercy. The other thing we have here is a type and a foreshadowing, uh, and that is that this child of David, this son of David, uh, 
is put to death by the Lord. And that too points, albeit in a rather subtle way, to the ultimate son of David, David's son, David's Lord, whom the Lord also puts to death. That is, this, per, this, this little baby typifies Christ. As we'll see, uh, Bathsheba is in the line of Christ. Obviously, David is, right? And so here, this first son dying in that line hearkens to the son of David who will give his life uh, on account of the sins of others. So uh, even if you want to take that kind of line of uh, the child is innocent in this but dies on account of the sins of others, who does that sound like? Precisely like Christ, the son of David, the innocent who dies on account of the sins of others. Furthermore, I would simply add this point, and not that we need to overdo the, uh, the apologetic here, uh, because God is God. He can do whatever he wants. Whatever he does is right. Our lives aren't our own anyways. Our lives are all in his hands, so let's not sit in judgment against the Lord. But I think let's do nonetheless rearrange our perspective. What God did to this child was snatched him early <laughs> out of the sufferings of this life and brought him home rejoicing to his eternal family, angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. The, I mean, in the sense we say, why did the child get punished? I'm not sure the child or anyone else would have, you know, from heaven's vantage point, would have said that was much of a punishment. Come home early and avoid the troubles of this life, not only the acute troubles uh, uh, of, of David's own household that are coming upon David's children. So that helps us, too, to think in those, in those more broader terms. All right, so much, much, much can be made of, of this and has been made of this and should be made of this uh, to our comfort, to pointing us to Christ, to opening our eyes to the, to the true fact that this life isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Yes, I saw um, a hand or a comment, maybe. Yes. Um, how was David assured Yeah, that's a great question. David's assurance comes on the basis of, well, first of all, what you see is that David, all Israel, all God's people all the time, see their children as incorporated into God's salvific promises. They see their children even as having faith. Um, David in Psalm 22 says, you taught me to trust you, speaking to the Lord, from my mother's breast. So even as a nursing infant, I had faith in you. And of course, even later, I mean, just connecting the dots, John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb. So, and nobody finds this unusual or says, oh, wait a minute, we, we, did, we thought all babies went to hell. Now this baby in utero is leaping. I mean, you see, there's, there's just this simple understanding that the people of God, their children, can have faith. The assumption is that they do have faith, that God's word penetrates that, that God's blessings to the parents redound to their children unless their children reject that. I mean, just all of this is kind of the biblical perspective. So the assumption that Christians should have is if they lose a child in utero before birth or after birth but before baptism, the assumption they should have is that God is gracious and merciful, more so even than we are and his promises to us redound to our children. and We should have no doubt in the, in the salvation. It's a different question where you have pagan people who hate God and, and their children die. It's, it's a different question. It just is a foundationally different question. 
Um, even, even there, there's some ambiguity in the church's answer. And are, are all infants, you know, born to unbelievers, uh, you know, immediately, immediately sentenced with their parents to hell, that kind of thing. So there's a, there are kind of two, two ways to answer that. And I think the safest answer also ultimately is without denying any of the biblical truths given, especially the biblical truths that uh, those who reject or don't believe in Christ are, are condemned, uh, we still commend each individual soul into God's hands and reserve judgment for him. It belongs to him, not to us. So, yeah, those broadly speaking are some of the are some of the thoughts we ought to have here. All right, so much, much, much to be gleaned from this text. Um, going into uh, the latter half of verse fifteen. And here you can see how artificial the, the little heading breaks are, and indeed the chapter breaks and the verse breaks. You know, they're not part of the original text. And here you can see a, a subheading inserted in the middle of verse 15. And the original text, of course, it just keeps going. So verse 15 from the top, Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife, notice, notice Uriah's wife, emphasized, bore to David, and he became sick. Okay. David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child, which shows already David's trusting heart in God's mercy, and that God may yet have mercy on this child, even though he has said God may change his mind. So he seeks uh, God on behalf of the child, and David fasted, and went in and lay all night on the ground. Okay, ritual enactments of his, you know, bodily enactments of his remorse, of his sorrow, and of his petition that the Lord would have mercy. Also a little strange, because he's mourning and acting as though the child is dead already. And that gets brought out in the text as we go. But I'll just point that out in a preliminary way here. Verse 17, And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And again, the import of that is the eighth day is the day of circumcision, so he dies before circumcision. That's... Um, that's a key detail. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. I mean, shorthand, he's already acting as if the child died. Before the child had even died, what's going to become of him once he finds out the child has died? You know, will he... Will he harm himself in some way? Verse 19, But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David rose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. This is all completely unexpected because you would expect him to continue his mourning for a period um, and instead, he doesn't mourn at all. He ends his mourning. So this is, 
It's particularly strange behavior on the part of David, culturally speaking. So he washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, this is reference to the tabernacle, and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And there's David's confession of faith, that the child is, is with the Lord. That's where David plans to go, intends to go, knows he's going. And so, I will go to him, he will not return to me. That's David's statement of faith that God is gracious and has taken this child to himself. And again, I think we, the fact that this is recorded, uh, this is paradigmatic for how the Old Testament people thought and, uh, and continues, I think, with perfect continuity into the New Testament that children are simply uh, embraced in the salvation of the Lord, children of believers in particular here. Certainly they hear the word of the Lord, are nurtured by that word, can have faith, etc., etc. But all of that sometimes strikes me as questions that the Bible itself isn't interested in. God's people are God's people, and, and God honors that. All right, so on to verse 24. Then David comforted his wife. Okay, so for the first time now, we have the, we have the temporal consequences announced, the, the most acute and the foremost of those carried out. Of course, the sword in David's family, that's going to pick up right away. But there is a resolution here. The sin has been dealt with, as it were. And so now, now David is given a new beginning with his wife, called so the, for the first time Bathsheba. And went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. Of course, the moment of this is huge, biblically speaking, because this will be the next king of Israel. Uh, so this is a huge and rather profound moment. And lest we forget, you know, David's son Solomon um, is born out of this strife and turmoil, a point, that, a point that Matthew picks up in his gospel where he lists uh, the wife of Uriah in the line of Christ. Because yeah. Solomon ultimately comes from David through, or excuse me, Jesus ultimately comes from David through Solomon, son of David, son of Solomon. Okay. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So this, uh, this baby gets two names, Solomon and Jedidiah. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. So that seems to be the content of the message sent by the Lord uh, through Nathan, now to David. And Solomon has these two names. 
All right, well, that brings resolution to the, uh, the David and Bathsheba saga in and of itself. Of course, the consequences are going to echo throughout the remainder of David's life and the remainder of this text, but that uh, incident itself is now concluded. All right, any thoughts, any comments, any questions, anything you, you care to add? I know that there's, there's a lot here and there's so much here. This is a very, very poignant story and the fact that it's brought back into the New Testament text um, makes it poignant and makes it important and so this is a place where we Christians have spent a lot of time and a lot of thought and gathered a lot of insight and also comfort uh, and we should continue to do so. All right, well, then on to the next. Chapter 12, verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. Let me see. And verse 27, And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. <laughs> so, yeah, Joab doesn't want that. And obviously the, the honor and glory belong to David anyway as the king. So, um, Verse 29, so David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, which, uh, as your ESV study notes, says 75 pounds. 75 pounds is this crown. And in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. Uh, yeah, maybe held there, maybe ceremonially kind of placed by his head with two guys holding it on either side. 75 pounds. Left. I know I'm kind of a pencil neck, but I was imagining 75. I don't know. I don't know who could have 75 pounds on their head. Especially, you know, like to the, I mean, wouldn't that, like, let's assume it fit. Wouldn't that do a number on your scalp? Yeah, I don't, yeah, it had. <laughs> anyway, I spent too much time thinking about that. Okay, so, yeah, so this is a big deal. I mean, this is a major military victory. I think that that's, that's kind of the point. Joab wants, the, wants it to be... Uh, uh, credited to David. David is crowned with this enormous, immense crown. All right, and then, and then we just continue verse 30. And he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the city of, cities of the Ammonites then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Again, I mean, the Ammonites represent ancient, uh, ancient enemies of God's people and people who have wronged God's people over the course. So again, I think when we leap out of context here, we see some sort of like oppression or that's just not in context how it would have been perceived. It would have been perceived as, as justice, as the right thing and as a resolution. The city of waters... Uh, the study note says on verse 27, so-called because Rabbah was on both sides of the river, river Jabbok or Jabbok. All right. Now on to uh, 
onto tragedy. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Okay, so you've got, there they are, uh, Amnon and Tamar would be stepbrothers and sisters. And Amnon would be David's oldest and heir to the throne. Uh, obviously, this is a, an incestuous kind of love and is forbidden by the law of God. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. That, has, that means uh, she was able to be married. That's the point. She was an eligible, what would you say, bachelorette, right? That's the, that's the point being made. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Okay. I mean, it was impossible for him to possess her in any lawful way. Uh, that seems to be the sense of that verse, at least at this point. Although maybe there's a hint there. At least there sounds like a hint in English uh, to what, what occurs. Verse 3, But Amnon had a friend whose name was uh, Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. So, this is, so Jonadab is David's nephew. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, there's flattery and also, uh, you know, hey, why, you can do whatever you want here. Why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, so when David comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me uh, bread to eat. So the king's daughters would have been under care and under watch and all of this. And so this is why, you know, um, Amnon can't gain any access to her. And so they, so uh, Jonadab concocts this plan. Now, one of the commentaries I read suggests that, it, that this plan isn't necessarily nefarious. It may be the case that Jonadab sort of thought, um, if he just spends a few minutes with her alone, if he just sees her more than, you know, like a flash here, a flash there, maybe he'll sort of get over his infatuation and move on. Uh, that's certainly one option, although I think the more traditional way of reading this text is to see, uh, I mean, there's re and there's reasons for that, too, because you see Jonadab not implicated elsewhere, and later on it gives advice to David and that kind of thing, so it's possible. Um, but it's also possible he, he's implicated here in, uh, you know, trying to curry favor with Amnon, who is ultimately to be the king, Hey, if I help him out with this, then when he becomes king, I'll be in his good favor, etc. Anyway, they concoct the plan. When your father David comes to see you because you're sick, then you petition him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. In other words, this request that she would come sort of outside of the normal supervision and come and be able to minister or care for him in his sickness. Verse 6, so Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. 
uh, of course, yeah, you don't have doctors, you don't have antibiotics. So anytime anyone's laying in bed and bedridden, I mean, this is potentially life and death, you know. So that's why it's, uh, it's taken in a much more serious way. And David is perhaps willing to do this kind of extraordinary thing of having, you know, one of Amnon's stepsisters come and minister to him because who knows what this would be. David's probably very sensitive to the fact because he's lost a son fairly recently and the first son born to Bathsheba. Um, so anyway, you can see how all these things kind of twist together. All right, so Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, verse 6. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out uh, before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. Yeah, so obviously he seduces her back to a more, much more private place. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister, which is gross. <laughs> it's just one of the grossest lines, isn't it? Just, yeah, I don't know. It's gross. All right, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, uh, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Yeah, so, okay, so if you analyze, if you analyze what she's saying, obviously she does not want to be raped, and she's trying to talk him out of this. Such a thing is not done in Israel is really an appeal to the law of God. The law of God prohibits uh, not rape, but you know, here you can see her diplomacy. Um, this relationship between a stepbrother and a, and a stepsister that's forbidden by God's law. That's really what's at root is it's an appeal to their religious conviction. You know, no one who believes in Yahweh would carry this thing out. Uh, do not do this outrageous thing. And that seems to be parallel to what preceded. As for me, where could I carry my shame, uh, you know, being, being guilty of this thing? And also then, um, I mean, in a sense, yeah. Yeah, in a sense, this kind of preclude. I don't know if it absolutely, according to the law, precludes her from marriage, but... Yeah, at least is a huge, at minimum, it's this huge, huge blemish. All right, and then as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. In other words, everyone would know you to be an absolute scoundrel and, you know, a disgusting person, and you wouldn't be able to escape that. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you, is probably a last desperate attempt, because he almost certainly would have, uh, given that it's against God's law. So she's desperate here. It's really kind of a sad thing. 
Verse 14, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, showing that all his love in the first place wasn't love at all, but was lust. Well, duh, if you're not willing, I mean, you know, if he, I hate to speak in kind of a, a platitudinous way, but if he really loved her, right, I, he never would have done any of this. He would have honored her as, as a sister and he would have repented before God of his sin and asked for his soul and his desires to be healed and set right. I mean, that's what love is. So none of it was love. All of it was lust. Uh, it's just disgusting. It ends up in you know, his real disgusting statement. Uh, uh, okay, well, and then he follows through with the deed, obviously, and then his, his so-called love for her instantly reveals itself for what it has always been, a pure hatred. So then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. Having achieved you know, the ends of his lust, he has no more use for her. So, And then the commentator pointed out on this, um, Steinman in the Concordia commentary, that, that this, uh, this treatment of her culturally speaking, it might be hard for us to wrap our minds around, but this treatment of her culturally speaking was worse than the rape uh, because, because of the way that... Um, She's not, she's not allowed to gain any justice or any standing or any reparation. You know, it's like the damage was done and the damage, although I mean, as severe as it is, could be in some respects mitigated. Uh, this is like the ultimate cruelty of even depriving her of, of any mitigation, of any way to he be healed from this. So, uh, hated her with a very great hatred so that... Um, the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Yeah. I think that's expressive more of the, the feeling, the emotion. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. Right. Let me see if I've got that. Yeah, I do. I've got that. That's the thing I marked. So uh, this is from Steinman. Tamar's refusal to leave corresponds to the law of Moses. A man who seduced a virgin was obligated to marry her, and his rejection of her was even worse than the rape itself. But Amnon's disgust and hatred for her was complete. He ordered his staff to eject her from the house. He had called her his sister. Yeah, in that super gross line in verse 11, but now he dismissed her as, quote-unquote, this one. Okay. Yeah, so get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this is wrong. Um, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you, had, that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who, the, who served him and said, put this woman, yeah, there it is, this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Yeah, so very, very tragic for for poor Tamar. And um, 
Yeah, and it doesn't get any better from here. So verse 20, And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. I mean, it ruined her for marriage. Again, I don't know if, if it legally did. It may well have, I, but it certainly did psychologically. She lives as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Now, Absalom obviously comforts her with weak words. I mean, this is no comfort, right? Hold your peace. Do not take this to heart. I mean, it's... But there's a lot going on here because you do see Absalom's... In terms of his weak comfort, you see his falling short. But he takes her into his house, so you see something to his credit. What is actually glaringly absent is that David does not take her in, that David is not addressing this. And this becomes a major, major theme that not only... uh, We've seen uh, uh, David do a significant sin of commission. Now we're going to see David do a significant sin of omission. And David omits to dealing with this situation rightly. And then we're going to see the consequences of that. So not to overgeneralize, but you do have in this text two examples of what happens, not only in terms of a king or ruler who does wrongly or fails to do rightly, but then also just very personally and familiarly when those who are in authority are in a position to act and even act justly, correctly, punitively against family members. Um, inaction is as bad and as devastating as action, uh, you know, bad action, right? Um, failing to do the right thing is as bad or worse in some cases than doing the wrong thing. So that is, that is probably what's most in view here is she shouldn't be in her brother's house. She should be in her father's house. Her father should be addressing this directly. And that's where at least from the start, Absalom, we see him as a conflicted character even from this very first line because we see him as, on the one hand, trying to do the right thing and keep, keeping his sister there, but comforting her so weakly. And based on our knowledge of what he's going to do, we see why the comfort is so weak. He is more interested in revenge than he is really, frankly, in, the, in his sister's well-being. And so... You see those character flaws right away on the part of Absalom. You see the character flaw on the part of David here already even at this point. Okay, well, I see that we're at time. So unfortunately, we'll just have to pick up with this this tragic and nasty situation uh, next week. Until then, the Lord be with you.